There's no end to topics and tangents that we could go off on with pulmonary embolism, but I do want to cover a few more things before we close out pulmonary embolism and move on to different lectures. And one of the things that is still overused in the treatment, and I hate to use the word treatment because it's not really a treatment, but one of the things that's overused is inferior vena cava filters. Both the American and the European guidelines do not recommend routine use of IVC filters in patients with acute pulmonary embolism. If you can be treated with anticoagulants, meaning if you're able to start anticoagulation, is there a benefit to adding an IVC filter? So let's look at the evidence on this for a minute. So there were two trials that often get quoted. One is the first PREPIC trial, so that's P-R-E-P-I-C, and that was in circulation in 2005, in July that year. And that was an eight-year follow-up of patients with permanent vena cava filters in the prevention of pulmonary embolism. It was called the PREPIC trial because the title of it is Prevention du Risque de Emboli Pulmonaire Power Interruption Cave. I can't really do a French accent, but anyway, that's what it was called. So at eight years, they looked at these patients and did it help survival. Actually, it had no effect on survival if you put in one of these permanent IVC filters in this randomized trial. So the thing they also looked at is deep vein thrombosis. And probably not surprising if you put in a foreign thing like an IVC filter, it actually increased the DVT rate. Now, it should be noted that the number of pulmonary embolisms actually did decrease in those that got the IVC filter. But again, just because you got the filter and decreased the rate of pulmonary embolisms, it did not improve survival. Okay, and then we flash forward nearly exactly a decade later to the Journal of American Medical Association in 2015 when PREPIC-2 was published. And PREPIC is P-R-E-P-I-C, once again, just spelling it out for you. And this was a multi-center randomized trial. And this time, they were looking at retrievable vena cava filters. So you can remove these filters at three months. Now, let's be real about this. A lot of times, these filters do not get removed because there's poor communication from hospitalist to the outpatient doctor, the patient forgets to show up for an appointment, the patient doesn't want to go get another procedure, they no longer have insurance, they didn't have insurance to begin with, but because they were hospitalized, they got the procedure done. There's a million reasons as to why a retrievable IVC filter does not get retrieved. But this was the best of both worlds because it was a study condition. So the filter was retrieved at three months, and what did it show? Well, first of all, let me say that they tried a different population in this trial. They sought people that actually had increased risk for more venous thromboembolic disease. So they were really looking for a subpopulation of patients with an acute VTE in whom the risk of an early recurrence was so great that it seemed like placing a temporary IVC filter would make sense. So they were looking for people with additional risk factors, those that are 
over the age of 75, those with an active malignancy, right ventricular dysfunction. So again, they're looking at high-risk patients with a high risk of recurrence. And what they're looking at is whether adding a retrievable IBC filter plus anticoagulation or just using anticoagulation alone, not putting any filter in, had any benefit. And it didn't. And so when they looked at these hospitalized patients, they noted that the risk this time for pulmonary embolism was not decreased. A recurrent pulmonary embolism, I should say, was not decreased. In fact, it looked like there was actually a bit more recurrent pulmonary embolism in those that got the filter than those that did not get the filter and were just anticoagulated, but it wasn't statistically significant. Anyway, the trial clearly did not support the use of using a retrievable IVC filter if you were eligible for anticoagulation. Now, the question becomes, if you have a really severe PE, you know, you got a hypotensive patient who still has a DVT or one of those DVTs that's flapping around sometimes when you see it, should you put a filter in in that subset of acute PE patients who still can be anticoagulated, but have a severe PE and possibly more emboli could be fatal? And I'm not sure that answer exists at the moment. I mean, there are some registries that show there may be some benefit to an IBC filter in those with a massive PE, but I don't think it's a routine thing that we should be using in most pulmonary embolism patients. And it's one of those things that drives me a little nuts because clinically, I've had people who have been transferred to our hospital on anticoagulation who the requesting physician on transfer asked that we put in an IBC filter. Now, a bunch of these patients don't even have a DVT in their lower extremity. Either it broke off or it came from another area, such as the upper extremity. And I think it's nearly impossible at this point in history to justify putting in an IVC filter in someone who either no longer has a DVT in their lower extremity that can be anticoagulated or somebody that has been doing fairly well with their pulmonary embolism, who still has a DVT, but can be anticoagulated. Now, the question that sometimes makes me go, hmm, is what if there is extensive deep vein thrombosis in a patient and you're anticoagulating them? In that scenario, I'm not totally sure what the right thing to do is. And so I'm going to give an opinion. This is not supported by guidelines or some people that agree with me and may disagree with me on this. But in my own opinion, I'm looking at those patients with an extensive DVT who have a pulmonary embolism on whether we should be considering thrombolytic therapy in that situation. Right now, at this point in my practice, I'm usually sending that patient down to IR to get the leg thrombolyzed. IR meaning interventional radiology. And I also realize that not every hospital has that capability. And clearly, if there's absolute contraindications like an intracranial hemorrhage or even a known malignant intracranial neoplasm or aortic dissection or big bleeding issue going on, clearly I don't thrombolyze those patients. And then that's when you have to think, 
All right, I've got a lot of clapboard in here, and not only could it break off, but you could also have sequelae and complications of having a lot of burden in the lower extremities and start developing chronic edema, that post-phlebotic syndrome where not only have the edema and swelling, but true leg pain, leg discoloration, and sometimes skin sores that can become infected. So do I judge every doctor that places an IVC filter in someone who can be anticoagulated when the PE is not massive? I'm usually judging you, but occasionally, I'm joking, uh, occasionally I also put an IVC filter in in that strange scenario where there's something else going on that I don't really think was covered by the studies to date. But clearly we're at a point that IVC filters for venous thromboembolic disease that is being treated with anticoagulation really should not be used routinely. So that's it for IVC filters for now. Moving on, one of the things about pulmonary embolisms is they can happen to the people you least expect, people that eat kale and meditate and even do Zumba three times a week. They take a long plane flight or have an ankle injury and boom, a DVT or pulmonary embolism happens. And by the way, I still don't totally get what Zumba is. I briefly watched a couple classes going on and you can see into the dance studio in our gym from the lifting area, but you can only look for about 20 seconds where people think you're creepy. And so it's really easy to understand what aerobics and yoga is, but Zumba, a mystery to me. Hey, but anything that gets you out and moving has got to be good for you and must also reduce your risk of DVT and P. <laughs> you know, I was in um, Los Angeles last year at the Gold's Gym. My sister lives out in LA and my parents have an apartment there. So whenever I go out and visit them, I go to the Gold's Gym. A lot of people go to LA and they have cultural experiences and eat well and do all these things. I, I just go to the sweatiest, grossest place. But anyway, there are super fit people there. And one of these super fit women was wearing a t-shirt that said, I don't Zumba, I lift, bitch. And I thought that was pretty funny. Okay, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, people can get PEs and DVT no matter who they are. So obviously if there's a provoked event like an ankle fracture or plane flight or whatever, that's one thing. But what if it's unprovoked? And so clearly we know what to do if there's a second unprovoked VTE event, meaning that somebody comes in and it's their second time and they really didn't have a risk factor. In that situation, I don't think you can schedule a stop date for anticoagulation unless there's a good reason as to why you want to do that. You know, the patient does motor cross or is going to be a high risk for bleeding because they fall a lot or whatever. But in your typical patient with a second unprovoked DVT or PE, I think you've got to do long-term, lifelong anticoagulation. If you've got active cancer and you have venous thromboembolic disease history, I think you've got to be on lifelong anticoagulation until the cancer is cured. And then in that case, obviously, may be very reasonable to stop the anticoagulation. And, of course, it should be said that it may be reasonable to stop the anticoagulation because you think there's a really big bleeding risk, you know, big metastases to the head, 
having other bleeding from tumors. Okay, but the one place where I think I am probably still out on a limb, even though I think the guidelines agree with what I'm about to say, but I just don't see this in practice very much, is on the patient with their first time with either a DVT or a PE that was totally unprovoked. They show up in your clinic, they show up in your ER, they are on your hospital service, and they have a DVT and PE, and you can't figure out for the life of you why this happened. I mean, in that situation, that patient has a hypercoagulable state. And if I remember, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But anyway, for this unprovoked VTE, this venous thromboembolic disease, I have been arguing with a lot of my colleagues, both in hospital medicine and critical care and hematology, that I think that patient deserves lifelong anticoagulation unless there is a contraindication. Now, I realize probably more than half of those patients are going to be taken off of Coumadin or one of the novel oral anticoagulant therapies in about three to six months most of the time. Okay, so what... Let me quote from the guidelines because I don't want to put words in their mouth. So they say in patients with a first unprovoked DVT or PE who have a low or moderate bleeding risk, we suggest extended anticoagulant therapy, meaning no scheduled stop date instead of just anticoagulating them for three months. Okay, where the thing that gets a little bit difficult is, is when you have somebody who's a high bleeding risk. And in that situation, the guidelines say they recommend three months of anticoagulant therapy over extended therapy. And I I can't disagree with that, meaning if somebody is falling all the time, yeah, you may just want to pull the anticoagulation and see what happens and see if there's a second event. But also there is data now that D-dimer level can be measured about a month after stopping anticoagulant therapy, and that can influence the decision to stop or extend anticoagulant therapy. And so sometimes I've done that. I have a small outpatient practice, mostly I'm a hospitalist, but I've had patients who obviously they really don't want to be on anticoagulation, but I'm nervous to pull them off anticoagulation because they didn't really have a great reason for their event. And so we usually agree, let's stop it, let's check a D-dimer. If the D-dimer is still high a month later and they don't have a reason why that is, like a mechanical valve or something like that, then often it's pretty easy to convince them that you're at higher risk for having another VTE event and they don't want one of those either. So they'll often be willing to go back on anticoagulation. If the D-dimer is low, the risk is less. Okay, the other thing I wanted to mention was hypercoagulable disorder. So obviously these are really intensive things to study. In fact, I did two lectures on factor five wide, and if you go back into the history of this podcast. But on hypercoagulable disorders, if you've had an idiopathic DVT, meaning it just is unprovoked and comes out of nowhere, sure, I think getting a hypercoagulable panel in that situation is very reasonable. The only thing I would caution you is we keep adding things to the hypercoagulable panel because we keep learning of new hypercoagulable states. And so I think in 2016, we are far from understanding what all the hypercoagulable disorders are. So if you have an unprovoked DVT or PE, 
while you may get lucky and find a hypercoagulable state that helps explain why that happened and don't give too much influence to some of these hypercoagulable states that really shouldn't be causing unprovoked DVT or P in the most populations. But anyway, if it's negative and they don't have an obvious hypercoagulable state on your hypercoagulable panel, maybe in 2020 or 2030, we'll know the reason why that person had an unprovoked DVT or PE and what their underlying hypercoagulable problem is. But in my mind, an unprovoked DVT or PE is still a hypercoagulable state. Now, by the way, unfortunately, a lot of those people, I shouldn't say a lot, but some of those people who have a hypercoagulable state that don't show up on a hypercoagulable panel that end up having an unprovoked DVT or PE, sometimes that hypercoagulable state is an undiagnosed cancer. And again, I'm not saying to start shotgunning approaches to looking for cancer everywhere in that situation. But the fact is, is we're all going to have some patients who we didn't understand why they had a DVT or PE, and then six months later, a year later, we understand why, because we diagnose them with pancreatic cancer or something awful like that. You know, usually what I do is routine cancer screening and making sure that they are up to date. So if you're 55 and you have a PE or DVT and you have not had colon cancer screening, if you're a woman and you haven't had mammography, yeah, you're going to be going for that. And I mean, of course, if you have symptoms of cancer or, you know, you say, I've had this epigastric pain for six months and I had an EGD that was negative and now you present with bilateral DVTs, yeah, I may, in that case, want to be imaging for something in that area, like a pancreatic cancer. But usually you just do the routine screening. You know, testing for a hypercoagulable disorder in a first episode of venous thromboembolic disease is controversial at best. And again, I think if there's a reason why you had a, a provoked state, you know, you had surgery, all kinds of other things, then in that case, I think it's hard to justify ordering a hypercoagulable panel and having it change what you would do. I, I realize there are other opinions out there. Um, and likewise, testing for inherited thrombotic disorders and malignancy, while it can lead to the discovery of additional risk factors, it actually so far has not been shown to improve mortality. So there is this shared decision-making that you need to do with your patients when deciding how to proceed. If anticoagulation has been started and you decide that you want to do a hypercoagulable disorder workup, you probably just got to wait about two weeks after discontinuing anticoagulation to get some good study results, particularly if they were on Coumadin. However, here's where I have a problem. Ordering a hypercoagulable panel for every patient that comes in with a DVT and PE, I just simply disagree with, and I think most experts are in my corner on this. And I remember a couple years back, maybe it's been about three or four years now, where one of our hospital list directors, Dr. Andrew Ingram, was called by a surgeon at a prominent institution in Denver, and he was very upset with our standard of care in Colorado Springs because his hospitalists, no matter what, when there's a DVT or PE, order a hypercoagulable panel, and one of his patients 
was down in Colorado Springs who we diagnosed with DVT and PE that we thought was provoked. And he was very upset that that's not our standard of care and that we ought to really look at how we do things. And so our hospitalist director called me and he said, yeah, I just want your opinion on this before I call the surgeon back and talk with him. And I said, absolutely, you should not be getting a hypercoagulable panel on every DVT and PE patient before you start anticoagulation. Not only is it an enormous waste of money, I mean, these hypercoagulable panels are not cheap. It matters how many tests are on your hypercoagulable panel, but it can be $2,000, $3,000. And when you're seeing a lot of DVT and PE, because there are a lot of DVT and PEs in this world, to start doing that on every patient not only wastes a tremendous amount of money, I think it increases anxieties because you find things that probably were not a factor into why this patient got a DVT or PE. Again, I'm talking about provoked venous thromboembolic disease where there was a reason for why they got this. And despite the fact that it costs a lot and it probably shouldn't change practice, it's probably the wrong time to be testing in the setting of acute thrombosis because your antithrombin can be lowered by acute thrombosis, as can protein C and S. Likewise, factor VIII can be an acute phase reactant. And so if there's inflammation associated with the DVT in a big swollen leg, then you can have an elevated level of that. And so it can throw you off. And it's just, in my opinion, not the time to be testing this routinely. I mean, in the majority of those patients, you're going to be anticoagulating the patient anyway. And if you really are that interested, and you're probably over-testing it, but if you're really that interested in doing a hypercoagulable workup, you can do it after they come off of the anticoagulation at a later date. And if your argument, it's too late and they're too high risk to come off anticoagulation, well, then why does it matter whether you tested for a thrombophilia or a hypercoagulable state? Because in that situation, you're going to be keeping them on an anticoagulant no matter what. So why add the additional cost and worry about some genetic or acquired condition when it's really not going to add to anything clinically. But what happens in reality is sometimes we see our colleagues do things at one institution. Everybody says, well, they're a pretty smart person in most things, so we probably should mimic how they are practicing. But we got to really think through as to whether everything everybody does that is smart is a good thing. I know I do things where I have to change my practice because a colleague points it out and says, does that really make sense? And I say, no, just it's the way I've been doing it for 10 years, but now that you point it out, I agree with you. As long as your career is, is how long your learning process will be in the practice of medicine. So I guess the summary of this lecture is just because some people at the drop of a dime, want to throw in an IVC filter or check really expensive labs, it doesn't always make sense. All right, well, thank you for listening to this hospital and internal medicine lecture. This is Dr. Gil Parat, and I will catch you on the next round.